Welcome you to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today our theme is one that we should all be paying attention to, but unfortunately not everyone is, and that is the psychology of non-perception, and also how your non-perception of a situation and not seeking the real truth, but staying at your perceived truths can end up working against you. My guest is Robert Forte. And he is an independent scholar, international lecturer, and widely recognized uh, for being one of the foremost historians and research in the field of psychedelic movements. Uh, he has been around for 45 years. His website is alteredstatesofamerica.net, and we're going to him right now. Nice to have you with us today, Robert. Thank you so much, Gary. It is a real honor and a privilege to get to speak with you. I was so impressed with your presence and your message up in Kingston, New York, a few weeks ago when we met. And your film, Manufacturing Madness, is uh, really speaks to some issues that we really need a collective response to. So thank you. I'd like to ask you the following question. Just an overview of where I believe we have been misdirected in our attention, in our priorities, in our, our interest. In fact, not only is this intentional, um, it could never happen by happenstance or circumstance other than intentional. We've been groomed. We have been indoctrinated, and not very quickly, slowly. And as a result, we are a nation that's obese. And as I said in Kingston, you know, if you want to make America healthy again, then you've got to start by understanding how do we get unhealthy. You can't understand one half of an equation. You can't understand the solution if you don't understand the problem. You can't understand the problem unless you understand how do we get this problem and what are its solutions and can we look for universal solutions outside of something that's been manufactured for us. I couldn't agree, I couldn't agree with you more, Gary. Let me just jump in here because um, this is exactly what I think as well. Since I am... Uh, 66 years old. I was born in 1956. I I begin my analysis. I, I'm looking at my lifetime, like what has happened? Where where did these problems begin in my lifetime? And so I go I go a little bit further back, and my my research begins like in the post war period, the post World War II period, with the beginning of the National Security Act, and that that transition. That's where I begin. Where do you begin in this analysis that you're describing? I begin when I saw about in 1970 at the Institute of Applied Biology where I was a young scientist, not terribly bright, but very curious and a load of interest in finding out how phenomena work is both a uh, what is called a table scientist, both in applied and in uh, basic science. It was because it was called the Institute of Applied Biology, headed by one of the greatest minds I'd ever met, uh, Dr. Emmanuel Rivisi. He would sit and uh, he would look up at the ceiling and he'd say, "Now, what are we not looking for?" And I, I ask, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you can never find a solution unless you know that you're looking for one." They just don't come upon you accidentally or serendipitously. Mm -hmm. And he was looking for a solution in cancer and pain, and he was supported the whole institute by the pharmaceutical industry. And my first awareness occurred when I had completed 165 original experiments in anti-aging medicine, and it gave whole new insights. For example, I was the first person in the United States that I'm aware of uh, though Dr. Roy Warford at UCLA, seven years after I did this, got the credit because they never submitted my articles for publication. I didn't know that until three weeks ago. In any case, I fasted rats. And, uh, and by fasting rats, on an intermittent basis, they lived 22% longer. So I mm -hmm. thought, that's interesting. I wonder if that would work with humans. 
And then I look at the concept that when we sit down to eat, we had to eat everything on our plate because our parents came through the Great Depression and they didn't believe in wasting food. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't give us huge portions, but they gave us enough to eat that we'd be satisfied. Today, if you were to have the average young person, not all, but the average young person sit down to a meal that all of us got at one time, they'd say, where's the food? Well, there's plenty there. Well, I want more. And so we've been conditioned to believe that more is better. And the differentiation in product was not that one is healthier than another. It is give me more of a product. So now we have, I don't know if you've seen it, an advertisement for fried chicken where the bun is a glazed donut on top and bottom. But then you had a hamburger at one time, and hamburgers were, when I grew up, and probably when you grew up, were occasional things. Uh, otherwise, you ate a meal with your family, and uh, and you generally ate it between somewhere between 5 and uh, 7 o'clock. And people tended to go to bed earlier then. They tend to eat earlier. And your mother, if she was one who prepared your meals, which most cases it was, she went out of her way to try to keep her family healthy. The idea was a roof over your head, close on your back, a good education, and plenty of plenty to eat. There was no scarcity because none of those were given for 16 years between the beginning of the Great Depression and the end of World War uh, II. But then we thrived as a nation. We worked collectively together. It was a concept that we are stronger together than apart, and hence unionization was at 51%. Now it's at 9%. We believed in the individual, but the individual uh, was also a responsible member of society. So everyone, even though there were differences in wealth, everyone respected each other for what they contributed. So we had a concept, and it was the last time in American society as a whole that we respected the idea that we are always better if we share some common ethics that no matter what our ethnicity or culture respects each other. And therefore, we live together. It's our community, our city, our state, our country, and not mine. My my capacity to have enough money to buy a house separate from you all, then I don't want to associate with you all. And that separation began around 1975. But until that time, from 1940 to 1975, were the most prosperous times in American history for an average working-class person. And those were the people who built America. And part of my awareness was when I started seeing the separation of people who were going for the gold, they were, you know, careerists, lawyers, doctors, engineers, psychiatrists, uh, scientists, professors, architects, they were, they were careerists. And as a careerist, your family wasn't first, your health wasn't first, your mental state wasn't first, your success was first. And you were sure, however, and you assured everyone that sooner or later I'm going to stop long enough so we can enjoy the fruits of all this effort. So I might be working 16 hours a day. I might not be there for your ball games or your you know, transitions to different points of life, but I'll be there when it counts, which never happens. And, uh, and that's when I began to see this huge separation of perception of reality where I'm a better person, I'm a smarter person, I'm a richer person because I work harder than everyone else. Well, for every step in your success, you've just surrendered something that was more important in your success, the quality of your relationships, the love, the time, the hobbies, on self-reflection, meditation, introspection, uh, free time. None of that exists anymore in these successful people. And I began to counsel them by the thousands. And then I realized, my God, Everything we baby boomers were doing was wrong. It was wrong because we no longer thought of the collective uh, consciousness. We no longer, our perception was purely driven by our insecurities. More was better. And now we see the consequence of more. And look at all the people who are leaders. They're all miserable people with a mm-hmm. faux finish. And so everything is driven today by success and science, success. Think of what would have been different if we would have looked at COVID or any other condition, as what can we do to to lessen this without looking at from some miracle vaccine? And those who did, they succeeded in saving lives. Those who went along with it because there was great riches in compliance and rewards, they went ahead with the most disastrous public health program ever. The same way as 
you know, are you treating your children the right way? Are you giving them parenting and not trying to be their friend? Are you over-motivating them so that they don't have a childhood? They're just young adults. And so I started to see this, and the more I saw it, and I saw this at the Institute because once a month we would all gather for a monthly meeting, and they would all talk about what they were doing in chemotherapy, and nobody wanted to hear what I was doing with health and stress management and exercise. They didn't think any of that was important. Of course, they're all dead now, and that was the most important thing, but they were going for the gold, and they didn't have any time for someone who in their perceived mind, which became the reality, was insignificant. Slow it down, master it, share it, pass it forward. Can we all benefit from this? Is this a universal thing I'm working on? And that's the way I worked, and they didn't, and I saw the results of that, a very selfish um, group of people who are controlling everything, including controlling our perceptions. And I want to end with this. I'm sorry to have taken this long introduction, but I've given you enough for a whole show now. (laughs) Who said, no punishment, in my opinion, is too great for a man who can build his greatness upon his country's ruin? It was George Washington. And today, virtually everything that we see in people's achievements is based on a country's ruin. Hmm. That's very profound. I I really appreciate that. And I wanted to ask you in there, like, do you think that this um, kind of uh, collective dysfunction that you've just described um, was the result of an intentional engineering by a group of elites? Or was this just is this a society just kind of making a mistake, and are we are we perhaps in a process of a correction? Because I th- I think this is important, um, you know, to look at these trends, and really we're in a we're in a, a disastrous predicament right now on on many fronts. And we, we could talk about the 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 pandemic, we could talk about the military budget, we could talk about the health crisis, the nutrition crisis. But I'm also seeing that we're we're at a time in history where we are approaching a powerful a powerful correction, and um, and I and maybe we'll get around. I want to talk a little bit about the presidential candidacy of um, our friend Robert Kennedy and what that represents. But my first question is: If you think that this is the result of very devious and intentional social engineering that has created this collective dysfunction. That's important. I think that we get clear on that. No, I believe that this is not because we were raised with greater ideals. We just didn't honor them. My generation, your generation, we frequently rebelled against the what we considered the boring, standard, predictable lifespan. We didn't ask what within that lifespan is essential to your well-being and mental state. We look for something that we were smarter. We were the first generation in American history as a whole to go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And therefore, we thought our parents were too conservative, um, Mm -hmm. were too much in awe of authority, and we didn't trust authority. Remember, we're the ones who protest the Vietnam War, work for women's rights and indigenous rights, So we broke free, but in the process of breaking free, we didn't realize that if you don't have some boundaries of ethics, spirituality, uh, classic morals, where you value life and other people, irrespective of your differences, you celebrate your differences, you don't fight them, and we threw all that aside. We only thought about ourselves. We became the ultimate narcissist and that is what I saw. However, do I believe that virtually everything t- today when it comes to public health and public perception is contrived? You bet. Controlled absolutely. The World Economic Forum, the uh, Atlantic Council, the Business Roundtable, Council of Foreign Relations, and virtually all, their, all of their adjuvants and all of their sycophants who are technocrats, they control everything. They control the media, and we saw that absolutely and clearly without any question with who was behind uh, the, the banning and censoring uh, of, in, of all the Robert Kennedy Jr. And, uh, and others who spoke the truth to lies. That was a coordinated effort and continues to this day. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's, um, it's a little bit of both. 
that it's both just kind of a, you know a society um, evolving and going through changes, but also with um, you know small um, groups of power, the World Economic Forum, and so on, uh, directing this. Is that is that correct? You are absolutely correct. Yep. But also keep in mind, not only are you correct in what you're saying here, Robert, but none of these people were elected. They were selected, and it becomes self-selecting. The only criteria is, are you willing to deal in manufacturing illusions that people then perceive as reality? And hence today, with 5G, and now I'm writing an article on 10G, Huh. They had they, they lied to everyone, but they did it so cleverly that yeah. people sign up for it. Today, people would sign up for almost anything without asking, what am I really signing up? What's the proof this benefits me? Am I going to give up any of my rights? They don't care. We've, we've gone into this almost intellectual dystopian place where we're incapable of critical thinking. Not everyone, by any means. At least 150 million Americans, minimally, still engage in critical thinking, but they they are so disgusted, they're so apathetic, they become independent. And the independent conservative and liberals that once belonged to the Democratic or Republican Party that got fed up with them, they haven't voted. Now, this time, I believe they'll vote for Robert Kennedy Jr., and right. if they vote at all, but they're just sick. So they've been the silent majority. And they're the ones now finding their voice. And that's a huge voice. Yes. And they're the only ones capable at this moment of stopping all the control over our lives. Yes. Yes, that's how I feel. I've been, um, I've been well aware of the uh, crisis points throughout uh, the last, you know, 60 years. I, uh, you know, I liked, I'm, I'm writing a, um, a book myself, a memoir of my um, experiences through the various psychedelic movements in this country and you know i I remember it was about um well it was in the mid 1980s after i had had a a period of very intense involvement in this subject of psychedelics and when i say intense involvement i mean i i i i stayed away from these drugs when i was in high school and for my first few years of college i considered myself an athlete and a yogi and I didn't see any positive effects of these drugs on people as they swept into my community in, in uh, where I grew up outside of New York. And it wasn't until my third year of college when I began to become interested in the history of religion and like who who developed meditation and yoga? How did ancient people come up with these simple but um, very effective technologies and metaphysical systems to um, to improve our, our health and well-being? And that led me into um, the subject of shamanism and psychedelic mushrooms. And I realized that this whole thing that had happened in the 60s was was um, was uh, a, a lot of misunderstanding. And so I endeavored to begin to try to clear up some of those misunderstandings. And after a few years of organizing conferences and editing a book and doing controlled experiments on myself, um, I somebody came and showed me a copy of the Zabruder film of the assassination of John Kennedy. And I, I hadn't paid any attention to this stuff. You know, I was I was now about 30 years old. And I was really kind of shocked when I saw this, because when you look at the Zabruder film, it's obvious that President Kennedy was shot from the front. And yet somehow this completely preposterous story of a guy in a building behind him shooting through trees who, who couldn't even you know, pass a marksman's test um, was uh, accused of killing him and then killed himself. And then the whole thing was just brushed under the carpet. And we had this succession of presidents who just perpetuated this military industrial complex that Eisenhower had warned about. And I was just astonished by this and my and my friends and, and, and astonished and disappointed in my friends and colleagues in the in the world of psychedelic drugs, which were supposed to be um, a way to cleanse the doors of perception, to wake you up, to be able to see reality on a different, more honest level. People were 
oblivious to this or apathetic, as you pointed out a moment ago, that the culture had become like extremely narcissistic and that individuals weren't really connected to these kinds of uh, universal ideas of morality or justice. Um, there was a lot of lip service to them. But when when it came right down to it, here we were. You could see this, obviously, that the United States of America was subject to a coup d'etat, that the president, a beloved president, was killed. Not just any president, but a president who had finally really started to make some changes, fundamental changes to the governance of the United States. He's going to take apart the Federal Reserve. He was going to begin a, um, a friendly, cooperative, sustainable relationship with the Soviet Union instead of, you know, each trying to make bigger, more devastating weapons. And he was an inspired, I believe, prophetic, flawed, not perfect, but a, but a really inspiring leader. Gunned down in broad daylight and nobody did a thing to address this problem. And this this concerned me. This is actually the beginning of my inquiry. And when I years later coined this phrase, the psychology of non-perception, which is an analysis of how people avoid seeing the obvious techniques, strategies that are either employed from within the individual or by the culture at large to prevent people from seeing the obvious. And um, that's still one to me, you know, we can go on from there. There was, of course, President Kennedy's assassination. And then, as you mentioned, his brother's assassination, a little harder to discern that that official story also is completely fabricated and that Sirhan did not fire those shots that killed the, that killed Bobby. He was shot from behind and the, the investigation was a cover up, not really an investigation. And so now, um, having had the opportunity to meet Robert Kennedy Jr., when he walked in the room the day that I first met him and we had a conversation actually about psychedelic drugs, um, I could feel the presence of his uncle and his father enter the room. And this was a couple years before he announced his political ambitions, that this is an opportunity for us to to um, resume um, a corrective direction for the United States of America. Psychedelic no, drugs very, will have very, no very good overview. I'm, I want to pick up on something you just said, Robert. Okay. At this moment, in my opinion, many people are becoming increasingly alarmed at the levels of social engineering and the sophistication of propaganda to persuade large segments of the population to almost unwillingly believe in falsehoods and narratives that go against people's best interests and freedoms and common sense and reason. Yep. We are surrounded by official science, which is draconian in measures of the lockdown and masking during the pandemic. And that's just one example. There have been several individuals now speaking and writing more about this phenomena, uh, such as the Belgian psychologist Matthias Desmet and mm -hmm. T.J. Cole, who wrote, uh, We'll Tell You What to Think both of whom I've interviewed on this program. And if we dive deeper into this phenomena, mm -hmm. we have to ask the question, why don't people perceive correctly that which is presented to their senses? And there's mm -hmm. a kind of unintentional blindness yep. that most people become victims of unless they're very alert. Yes. Uh, what, me, what, you, me, what you seem to be referring to as the psychology of non-perception, you just mentioned this. I assume this is because most people are unable to perceive unexpected stimuli because of their prior selection, attention, or neglect. So if people, let me just see if I can get this right, if people then, uh, if people have more or less pre-programmed themselves to non-perceive reality, with any clarity, then this obviously becomes a very useful tool for authoritarian regimes and institutions to influence and brainwash and socially engineer most of the popular, uh, population to support their agendas and narratives. So when I look now at the Democratic Party and I look at the corporate liberals, I see fascism emerging. Yes. And yet these people 
will say, oh, I'm not the fascist. You know, I'm against fascism. And I see critical race theory of people promoting a new form uh, and the most imbecilic and nonsensical and immature intellectual thought imaginable. And these are by race hustlers, people who benefit financially or politically or in their careers by saying, see, I said all Caucasians ever born in history uh, are a racist, and they can't get over it. They can't change it. There's no proof of this to the contrary. And yet, think of all the Democrats, think of all the people in the media, thousands that will appear on these shows and say, we can't trust you because you're Caucasian. And then people say, we're going to exclude you. You can't come to a graduation. My God, we're going, we're erasing the last 65 years of civil rights movement. And if, if Martin Luther King were alive today, he, I believe, would be canceled. He would be denigrated. Garvey would also be canceled and denigrated. Uh, du Bois would be canceled. And, and people who have no concept of history don't understand how do we become where we're virtually in, being controlled by madness. And yet right. those are the Democrats. Now, I'm not giving any leeway to the Republicans in fact, I frequently don't talk a lot about Republicans because I don't believe that you should challenge intellectually stuff to find individuals. Saying, I, they just don't have it together, and they're not going to. So we, we're left with individuals seeing the discrepancies in our cognitive disconnect on every level. You know, wokeism uh, and, and identity politics are mm-hmm. running virtually every institution today. And uh, it's for the silent majority to stand up and say, no more of this. This is crazy. Your thoughts, please. Yep. I'm not sure it's a silent majority because, um, well, let me, you know, you mentioned um, social engineering. And uh, this is a subject that really interests me a great deal. You know, I have a I have a academic background. My undergraduate degree is in um, social psychology, where I was very lucky to study with one of the um, most important influential social psychologists of the last century, whose name was Elliot Aronson, who was a protege of Leon Festinger, who coined the phrase cognitive dissonance and did a lot of research in that phenomena. And, um, you know, when I was first studying social psychology, I was um, under the impression that these um, that the research and the findings of social psychology were designed to help our society understand um, the traps that we were that were being set for us. But since then, I've learned and it's been a kind of difficult revelation uh, Bobby Kennedy mentions this in his very important book on Anthony Fauci, where he talks about the um, kind of well-known um, Stanley Milgram obedience experiments, where um, subjects at Yale University, they found that um, subjects would, 80% of the subjects would obey an authority, even if the authority was telling them to administer harmful, um, it's sometimes even fatal electric shocks in the interest of an experiment for the well-being. Bobby Kennedy talks about this study and points out that this study was uh, funded by the CIA. Now, that was, um, it's really important for us to wrap our minds around because the subject that I'm getting into now is the weaponization of psychological research. And it actually happened before this. And I want you to just bear with me for a second when I describe the very important experiments of a of Solomon Ash. These are these are one of the this is really one of the beginnings of the field of social psychology. Pretty much anybody that's taken a psych 101 in college had to learn about these experiments where um, they found that 80% of the of the experimental subjects would defy their own senses in order to conform to a group opinion that was obviously wrong right so you people are asked to they're they're taken into a room and there's 19 other people and they're asked to the answer to a very simple and obvious question, like which line is the same length as another line? 
it's obvious what the answer is. But the experiment is set up so you have 19 people give the wrong answer. And now it's your turn. You're the only one that's being experimented on. It's your turn to answer. And what do you do? Well, when I ask this question to audiences or students, almost everybody says, well, they would, they would speak the truth and give the right obvious answer and defy the group opinion. But actually, when Solomon Ash did this study, and this is one of the most replicated studies in the whole field of psychology, 75 to 80% go along with the group opinion, even though it is obviously wrong. Now, that, these experiments started in 1938. This is a recipe for a totalitarian society. You can imagine, and this is and this is what we see today. Things like, as I said, the Kennedy assassinations or uh, 9/11 is another. You know, that's like the third rail of contemporary political discourse. You know, people don't even want to go on that. But come on, that's obvious. Those buildings fall down because of a controlled demolition, not because of a fire, and yet they repeat the wrong answer over and over and over and again, and and the vast majority of the population will go along with it because it's easier to align yourself with a group opinion than it is to speak the truth and and um and stand for what's right so this is a this is a predicament here we have in society and it was a, it's a very important concept to really grasp and it is also kind of this is a little difficult to get across but this is where the modern psychedelic drug movement that Timothy Leary was most known for, this is where it began. Let me explain. My professor, another professor of mine, Frank Barron, not a well-known man outside of academic circles, but in fact, he was one of the most cited professors in, in psychology at the, the University of California. <laughs> Frank was concerned what is it about those 10 to 15 percent of the population that doesn't conform to the group that has their own inner value their own inner locus of control what makes them different from the conformers and so and how do we how do we create more of those kind of people what makes them different and Frank did considerable research and found that this is just the more that that artists, for example, are tend to not be conformist. Why artists? Because artists are aware of their own creative power. Artists are aware that they that the reality there is their creation. You know, they can take responsibility for what they experience because they know they're part of the process, as opposed to people who are maybe suffer from a dearth of creativity and, and just look outside for, you know, already manufactured information and they can just regurgitate what they've experienced, what they've been taught. So I know I'm throwing out a lot of, you know, kind of uh information that's really packed and to really discuss these things you know takes a while but i just wanted to put this out there that's what you're that's what you've um, provoked in me good and and it's being well received by me <clears throat> because i like to take many disparate pieces and pull them all together showing there is a connectivity i'll give you an example and this is off the topic but related right now I'm sure you must have heard of it in the last couple of days. Professor Harari, the, the heir apparent of the World Economic Forum and uh, the leading spokesperson out there, he's everywhere doing these workshops, packed houses of highly educated people. And his newest thing is that artificial intelligence is going to rewrite the Bible and other holy books, uh, the mm -hmm. Quran and, and uh, the Talmud and the Torah, etc., and to make it more realistic so that people know that there was no actual God and there is no such God that's just superstition. But there might be some principles within uh, a given religious book that should be kept and everything else thrown away. Okay, that's their idea. And yet they had the power 
to bring that into every school system, to bring it into the conscious mind of the average person with, as you mentioned, repetition, telling the story over and over and over again, and then packing panels on television shows and commentaries and and having a so-called ethicist saying, no, this is the new religion. In effect, artificial intelligence is going to create a new religion. Now, you may think that's you know, too extreme. Well, how about this, Robert? This is today from the Irish Examiner. Quote, hundreds attend artificial intelligence church service in Germany. The, uh, uh, quote, hundreds of German Protestants attended a church service in Bavaria that was generated entirely by artificial intelligence. The chat GPT chatbot led by, uh, led more than 300 through 40 minutes of prayer, music, sermons, and blessings. Quote, dear friends, it is an honor for me to stand here and preach to you as the first artificial intelligence at this year's convention of Protestants in Germany, end quote. Now, the avatar said with a expressionless face and a monotone voice, the service included the sermon, prayers, and music, all created by the chat GPT and uh, a jo- a Johannes uh, Sommerlin, a theologian and philosopher, at the University of Vienna, said, I concede this service, but actually I rather accompanied it because 98% comes from the machine. The, uh, and that quote, the Artificial Intelligence Church Service was one of hundreds of events the Convention of Protestants in Bavarian towns in Nuremberg and neighboring uh, Firth, and it has drawn such immense interest that people formed a long queue outside the 19th century neo-Gothic building for an hour before it began. Mm. So that's that's rather interesting, isn't it, that now yep. they're talking about rewriting all religious, the Bible, and now they're already starting with something out of the clouds, something nobody can see, something that was programmed yep. by individuals, and now it's creating the new religion, and it's... it's, it's uh, it's perceived as much better, smarter than anyone who's ever been in religion. So virtually all of religion is about to have a radical change. We're not talking about in 20 years. We're talking about right now as we are speaking today. And what do you think is going to happen when they suddenly go around the world and say to the 1.2 or 3 billion um, uh, Muslims, oh, uh, throw out the old, uh, throw, throw out the Quran. Um, that, that's no good anymore. That's child's play. Here's what you really should believe, and we control it. Yeah. Well, again, Gary, you're saying so many things that are so we could drill into, uh, you know, almost every sentence. But let me let me just say this: that I, like I'm I'm for um, rewriting or updating, um, uh, coming up with new understandings about the um, great religious texts. I mean, these these uh, historical documents are fascinating and rich and extremely important. And they need also to have a you know a critical analysis. And they need to be. I, I'm not. I'm not um, of the book. For me, religion is a lived experience, primarily in nature and an intimate connection with other people. I think that I think that the the people who follow these um, documents have a kind of fundamentalist view about the veracity of the Bible or the Quran or the Tao Te Ching or whatever are kind of missing the point of living religion. But when you have a a central authority like this clown excuse me harari is uh, endorsing then again that's a recipe for disaster and yes i agree that's happening now and it's something that needs to be looked at and you know we need to we need to stimulate a more intelligent conversation about this and let me uh, say another you're thing absolutely right because robert what what do you think is going to be the outcome when the masters of the universe you know these uh, these completely spiritualist uh, individuals who fake caring have control over a person's religious beliefs. Remember what you just said about the experiment where good people perceive themselves as good and kind would commit terrible acts, including causing the death of a person to maintain their position within the group think, even if they said, no, I would not be the one that would do something that was wrong. What do you think happens when the world's population is controlled by their religious 
virtues, and now those virtues are virtually controlled by artificial intelligence, which is controlled by Silicon Valley, which is controlled by the CIA, and the deep yeah. state, which is controlled by the billionaire class. Do you see where this is going? Yes, it's where it's where we're going, and that's where we're going fast. You know, this you asked, what, where do we? Lead, where does this lead to? Well, here I want to introduce to our listeners, you know, the the very important book by Aldous Huxley that he wrote in 1938, Brave New World, right? So, Brave New This is yeah, Soma. This is where we're headed. Brave New World. You know, when Huxley wrote that book, uh, he he pictured it 600 years in the future, this dystopian society where all the all the wealth and power, the Commonwealth is controlled by a very small number of people at the top of the pyramid. And the, most of the rest of the people are, you know, living on crumbs and they're totally controlled and they've been stupefied by by um, their genetics and by diet. And nobody does anything. Nobody organizes politically to do anything about this because when they get restive, when they get annoyed at their predicament, they're told to go on a Soma holiday. And a Soma holiday is where they're given this drug, as you said, called Soma, which is like a psychedelic drug, which makes you feel, gives you a quasi-mystical experience, makes you feel that everything is okay, and you're also commanded to fuck your brains out. You know, you have these random sexual contact with lots of people not falling in love, and um, and then they go back to work on Monday morning, and who wants to, you know, they're exhausted, and they're distracted, and they've just been um, anesthetized from their political predicament. So Huxley wrote that book in 1938, but in 1958, he wrote a subsequent essay, nonfiction essay, Brave New World Revisited, he called it, where he says, holy I thought it was 600 years in the future, but it's already happening now. And Soma, the new Soma, has been discovered by pharmacologists, and it's these psychedelic drugs. And the people can take LSD, or they can take MDMA, or they, and they can go to these festivals that are all orchestrated by the same groups. They go and they party, and they think they're connecting with nature, and they've had these God experiences, and there's nothing wrong. We can do this kind of stuff. So this is really... What's happening now? And I, I mentioned this because, um, you know, earlier I had said that psychedelic drugs have the potential to awaken people to a different, um, uh, to the unitive experience that's happened to me, it's happened to many people I know. So there's a dual function of these psychedelic drugs, depending on the way they are administered, to who they're administered, at what time in their life. They can sometimes be... Um, the most powerful awakening factor in a person's life. And sometimes they can be used, weaponized, as they are now, to um, disintegrate the personality and render it ineffective to any sort of political response. And that's that's kind of the, the world that I'm seeing now and what I'm going to, you know, to apply myself to try to elucidate. Good for you. This just came in. This is from David Skirpak. Moving towards a global empire, humanity sentenced to a unipolar prison in a digital gulag. That's exactly what you were referring to with Aldous Huxley. I've, watched, yeah. I've read all of his work, and I, I watched him in that famous Mike, uh, Mike Wallace uh, yes. interview. And, here's, and guess who says this? <laughs> Professor... Yuval Noah Harari, World Economic Forum, quote, this is him saying this. Listen to this. Okay. COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance, in quote. Quote, using the um, uh, fake uh, COVID narrative as cover, the privileged power-mad parasites who pilfer the world's wealth have simply and sharply accelerated their long-standing plan to create a single global empire that is completely under their con command. This single global empire will ultimately employ the services of all the transnational institutions on the planet in order to regulate and control every aspect of human life. 
It is a global empire run by an exclusive club, perhaps eight to 10,000 strong, whose members do not pledge allegiance to any national flag, who snobbishly view themselves as superior to their countrymen, and who are indifferent to political ideology so long as they can control the political structure from within. They aim to erase all national borders and are well on their way to shredding the constitutions of every nation state. It is a global empire that, unlike days of yore, needs no standing army to wage war on a battlefield against an opposing empire. For in this era of the single global empire, the enemy being subdued is each and every one of us. That mission is being accomplished through the sophisticated information warfare campaign, which is designed to monitor and manipulate our very thought, word, and deed. Importantly, this offensive attack on us is intended to suppress and stamp out freedom in every aspect of our lives, economic freedom, political freedom, particularly the freedom to impart and receive information and to accept or reject information, physical movement freedom, health care decision freedom, and above all, the independence to think for ourselves, what can be called mental freedom. And then it goes into exposing all this, and, uh, and, and, and we need to have more information like this given to all of us. But then again, this is not going to ever reach the average person. But the average person can and is now looking at other forums, uh, your forum, my forum, and others like Global Research, and even uh, uh, even forums uh, like uh, uh, they have over at, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Consortium News and yeah. op-ed news. So there's a, probably four or 500 smaller forms, Rumble, Odyssey, that provide yeah. a different perspective on the human condition and what we have to do to stop allowing ourselves to be indoctrinated. I say yeah. walk away from Wikipedia, walk away from the New York Times, walk away from the Washington Post and anything that's mainstream. Walk away from Rachel Maddow and all those talking heads on CNN. Walk away from all that. Walk away from Sean Hannity. Walk away from these people who are the neocons and the warmongers. Walk exactly. away yep. from there you go, so there you go talking like, Walk away there you from go all of it. There you go talking like my friend Timothy Leary, who's, um, who's um, kind of become cliche, turn on, tune in, drop out. Drop out of that, uh, that, that socially manufactured military mindset, that mindset of domination and control that is being inflicted on us and discover your own, um, create your own religions. And um, yeah, this is, uh, this is our challenge. This is my generation, and this is, this is our challenge. And it, it only takes really a small number of people. You know, if you, look at the, if you look at the history of revolutionary movements, and I've been feeling that a lot lately, having just moved here to um, Concord, Massachusetts, which is, you know, just two miles from here is where, where the American Revolutionary War began, which I know is a flawed and complicated episode, but still there are ideals um, imbued in that um, in that creation of the United States as a democratic country, as a rebuke to totalitarianism, and how do we actually do that? How do we gather this, the the small you know seven or eight percent of the population is really all it takes to spark a revolutionary movement, or we should say in this case a counter revolutionary movement, because as I said, we were subjected to a coup d'état in 63. And, um, and I think we need to focus on that. And, um, you know, I also have a I also have an abiding faith in the goodness of nature and in the goodness of humanity. And as dire as the predicament is, and it's more dire now than ever with this um, COVID scam that they've been able to pull off. Um, I, I do see I do see trends of awakening that are that are dramatic and tangible and important again with with the candidacy of Robert Kennedy and how this can how watching this movement congeal watching the battle between his you know um, his message his his message and how he's confronted by the media to me it's a very exciting it's a very exciting time to be alive I would agree and thank you for all the good work that you do out there, Robert. 
Uh, we're looking forward to another conversation where we can take this a little further because events are changing so rapidly. And uh, I believe that there's going to be uh, a real awakening in the very near future. If you have not received the latest articles like vaccines are safe and effective or are they, the definitive article, all with peer-reviewed science, supporting that we should have been challenging way before COVID every vaccine. Uh, if not, ask Richard Gale to send it to you. And also uh, the one of America is not, um, at, America is no longer uh, exceptional, though it once was. And yep. uh, those are the two newest ones. And I have two more articles coming up this week. We'll see you get them, all right? Well, I'd love to see them. And let me also say to your listeners that I, I, I maintain a presence on Facebook. I'm a little embarrassed to say that, but I found that to be an effective platform. I'm also in the process of shifting from Facebook to Substack. So I don't really like to speak into a vacuum. If there are listeners who um, like what I'm saying and want to encourage me to speak more, I'd like them to come and join my sub it's all free uh my substack page which is also altered states of america um at dot substack and um, we can continue this conversation and um i really appreciate your time and inviting me on and uh and my old friend rich from graduate school this is uh this is a nice period for us so uh, let's keep it going thank you so much okay now you're listening to robert forte f-o-r-t-e uh, from Massachusetts, and I gave you his email address or his, his website, alteredstatesofamerica.net. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour, and have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some.